Well, today I'm going to be talking about uh, the Magi, uh, which seems as if maybe it should be included as part of the Advent series, and I could, and I have done that before, and I could see why people would think that. But in in reality, um, the the Advi- the Magi event in the Nativity story actually happened probably quite a bit later from the birth time of Jesus, and so uh, there's a certain sense in which it's appropriate to do it a week or two or three. Uh, after uh, we celebrate um, the birth of Christ. Um, and, you know, I think among all the figures that we read about in Scripture, and I think you would agree, the Magi are what some would, would call enigmatic. They are mysterious people. We don't know a whole lot about them. We wonder about, even about why God would include them in the nativity story. And so I'm going to try and explore some of that today uh, for us because I think there's some some powerful lessons and uh, meaning behind their inclusion of the, the nativity account that should be helpful for all of us. So before I get to that, though, I do want to make uh, a number of notables uh, related to this story that helps set the context and the stage for this particular um, message. So, uh, you know, when you begin, you know that there are only, of the four Gospels, only two Gospels have, have accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ. Mark and John really have no accounts at all. Um, in Matthew, uh, he provides no birth narrative so there, there isn't anything about in Matthew about uh, Mary giving birth to baby Jesus. Luke, we get much more detail in that regard. Matthew, not so much. What's interesting is that Matthew, as he begins uh, this, you know, the overall account of the birth of Jesus Christ, um, but not specifically the birth of Jesus Christ on that particular night, uh, he assumes that his readers already know about that birth narrative. So uh, what he does is he goes from, Matthew goes from the point where uh, the, the angel or in the dream uh, with Joseph speaks to him, and Joseph then, uh, uh, you know, he's told to go ahead and marry, uh, be, you know, marry his, his, to be his wife. And then from that point on, Matthew jumps from that to the visit of the Magi. So there's nothing in between there in Matthew, which is kind of interesting. Interestingly, um, Matthew is a Jew uh, who will not use kingdom of God language. So he's, he's like a Hasidic Jew of sorts. So God is not a word that you would speak if you're a Hasidic Jew. You don't say the word God. You would use a synonym so instead of saying the kingdom of God, you would say the kingdom of heaven, which Matthew uses throughout the entire book of Matthew. But Matthew is the only one who includes these Gentiles, of the Magi, in this really important account about the birth of Jesus. So you would think that because he's a Jew, he might try to find opportunity not to include Gentiles. Luke, who is a Gentile, does not include 
the Magi at all in his narrative account. So it's, it seems to me, you know, as, um, as Kevin was reading earlier, uh, where Paul says, we are all one. There is therefore no Jew or Gentile, Greek, or we're, here is an example of how both Matthew and Luke are exercising that principle of sorts long before Paul ever said those words. That, the, that these magi who are Gentiles are included in this story and that it's Matthew that includes him, not Luke. You would think Luke would, be, would have more sympathy because he's a Gentile. He would want to include people of his tribe, but he doesn't do that. You would think that Matthew might want to exclude people who do not belong to his tribe, but he does not do that. He includes the Magi, um, whereas Luke does not. So that's kind of a notable, I think, and a significant notable as we understand uh, this particular story. Um, Luke, in the birth account and in the account of Jesus' life up until the point where um, he instructs the scribes and the teachers of the law in the temple, uh, Luke the Gentile includes all of the important Jewish ceremonial rites and practices according to the Torah. Matthew does not. You would think Matthew the Jew would include, like, so Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, and then Mary went and had the purification right after the 40th day. And you would think that Matthew would include all those important things, but he doesn't. It's Luke the Gentile who includes all of that. So um, it's Matthew uh, who, in addition to including the Magi, he also includes the flight to Egypt and the slaughter of the innocents. Luke does not. Luke doesn't include Herod in the birth narrative account. Matthew makes him a very, very prominent figure in his account. And I think uh, for a particular reason that we'll get into in a little bit. But Matthew's very careful to include the significance of Herod and the role that he played shortly after the birth of Jesus Christ uh, in Palestine. Matthew, in fact, makes Herod a prominent, villainous figure. Luke does not. So it seems to me, when you say that these are the synoptic Gospels, in other words, similar appearance, or they look alike, these are some, real, these are some very helpful ways in which we can see that they are not identical, that each in seminary, and when I was a student at Geneva College, we used to talk about how scripture, the, the writers of, of scripture wrote in what we call an organic fashion. In other words, as they wrote their particular account, they were allowed to bring to bear their own experiences, their own view, their own words, those kinds of things, um, in order that, that flavored the account that they gave to us. So it's very clear in the Gospel of Matthew, that he is Jewish. And it's very clear in the Gospel of Luke that he's very Jewish, or very, very much a Gentile. So um, 
So we see that, I think, very much a part of these two different accounts. So they, they appear to be sim- very similar, but there's some very distinct differences. I say that in part because there are some people who will say to you, well, there are a lot of inconsistencies in the scriptures. I mean, if you compare this account and that account, then, well, those accounts are different because they're organic. Each of those authors were allowed uh, to bring to bear their uniqueness as a writer to the story that they were supposed to write. You should never study, I think, uh, the nativity account, particularly as it relates to the shepherds or the magi, without making some important contrasts. So in today's society, among many progressive pastors and social justice pastors, um, they favor Luke above all other Gospels. Because Luke is the writer who tends to favor um, the minorities, the socially disenfranchised, people like that. So they would tend to be more in favor of Luke uh, in, in that regard, and probably more in favor of the shepherds as opposed to the Magi. So we have this sharp contrast in this, in this overarching birth narrative, where in the very beginning, it's the poorest of the poor, it's the most socially marginalized who are invited to come and to worship Jesus, on the one hand, and yet on the very end, on the very back end of this birth narrative, you have these magi who come who are wealthy, well-educated aristocrats. And that God uses some extraordinary means to bring them into the presence of God and to worship him. So, again... You know, as, as Kevin was reading that earlier passage, um, it was Kevin or was it, oh, I'm sorry, it was Jean. As Jean was reading that earlier passage about how everyone's included, that God is determined to bring to faith not just people who are Jews, not just people who grew up in, in, in the Christian faith, but through Christ, through Christ, He wants to bring everybody, as many as possible, into a saving relationship with himself through Christ. And sometimes it would appear he's willing to do that creatively, as he did with the Magi. So then, in addition to that sharp contrast between the shepherds and the Magi, we have people who were, the shepherds who were probably relatively uneducated, and you had the Magi who were very well. You you can't do what they did. You can't can't, um, establish yourself in the way that they did without being well-educated, and you certainly can't do that without being well-funded. Right? So, I mean, you can't have the level of education they had without being well-funded. You can't travel at least six weeks to a place you've never been before without being well-funded. You cannot give gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh 
Now, you know, when we talk about precious uh, 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 metals like gold and silver, and, and the Bible oftentimes talks about gold and silver, and we think that they're in relative close proximity in terms of worth. An ounce of silver today is worth just under $24 an ounce. An ounce of gold today is worth just under $1,900 an ounce. These magi showed up with gold, not silver, gold. You can't be well-funded. You can't be a person with means. You cannot be if you're giving away gold and giving away frankincense and myrrh, which were expensive spices and perfumes. Can't do it. So there's a sharp contrast of the kind of people they were socioeconomically versus who the shepherds were, and yet they were included in this account. And I think in a redemptive way, some of the commentaries that I, that I was reading uh, you know, seemed to imply they didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't really know what it was about, uh, that they were kind of like uh, quasi-pagans and they just had, uh, they just, I don't know, kind of mechanically did what they thought they were supposed to do without understanding the full import of what it was that they were doing. I don't think that's true. I think somehow God spoke to them and impressed upon them exactly who they were worshiping. In fact, when we get to that text When they entered into the house, the text reads, and they fell. Some of your translations read, they bowed. The word is fell. And they fell down and worshipped him. Now I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I just want to say to you, if you are an aristocrat and you are wealthy, and and, and, in a whisper you can tell any number of people what it is that they should do and how they should do it and how fast it should get done and all that kind of stuff. And if you're that kind of a person and you, you make all this effort to go visit this newborn king and you go into this little podunk town and this little rickety shack of a house... And you see these, these, um, these peasant parents with a baby, and you fall down and worship him? Do you see the contrast? That was not how the aristocracy acted back then. There was something that they knew about this child that Herod, who should have known, did not. So, and I don't know to what degree, in what manner, whatever, uh, but, you know, at least at that point in time of the world, they would have been perceived as pagans, whereas the people who were believers didn't believe, but the pagans who were not believers did believe. And sometimes I think, you know, by extension, we Christians get offended, don't we? When we bump into some people out there that don't have the level of education that we have, or the experience that we have with the church, and yet they seem to have a deeper relationship with Christ than what we do. And our pride is offended by it. And yet somehow clearly God has spoken to them and visited them and changed them in a way that all of our knowledge and our experience 
did not do. And it's that kind of a thing. So it seems to me that there's a unique way, a creative way, in which God is using these people to send a very clear message. Uh, Now, before we uh, get on a little further, I think it's also helpful to set the stage in terms of, uh, of a context for you. There's a timeline here that's important to understand. In fact, there are two timelines that are important to understand. Now, get this, that within the first 12 months, Mary's probably 14, Joseph is probably 18, unsophisticated people, righteous, good people, but not people of the world. And within 12 months, the archangel appears to Mary and says that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to become pregnant independently of a man. And that the archangel, in a dream, appears to Joseph and says to Joseph, look, you need to understand that what has happened to Mary comes from God and I want you to marry her despite all the social stuff that's going to be attached to that. I want you to marry her and to take her as your wife. Because the, the, the baby that she has in her is a boy. You shall name him Joy, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. For he will save his people from their sins. So that happens. Then Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, her cousin, who's elderly long after her ability to conceive and have children. She's pregnant. This miraculous thing. And not only is she pregnant, but she's pregnant with this, young, with this man who's going to announce Jesus and his kingdom. So then shortly after that, Mary comes home and she gives birth as a virgin to Jesus. And the same night in which she gives birth, these shepherds show up and say, you cannot believe what just happened to us. We were out in the fields minding our own business and the entire horizon was lit up with angels singing about the birth of your son. Now, if she was tempted to have postpartum depression, I'm sure that that woke her up a little bit, wouldn't you think? What would you think if somebody came to you and said that to you about your child? And then maybe weeks or a few months after that, these magi visit. So that's a lot within 12 months or so for any young couple to experience. Now then there's this post-birth timeline. When did the Magi visit? And this is important. So following the visit of the shepherds in Matthew 2, 1 through 12, we have Jesus' circumcision that we read about in Luke 2, 21, Eight days after Jesus is born. That's when every young male was to be circumcised. Eight days after they were born. Then 40 days after a mother gives birth, she is supposed to go to the temple and perform a a purification ceremony. I won't go into all the nitty gritty about that. It's just that's what they're supposed to do. And there are any number of there are any number of different kinds of animals that you can sacrifice in the temple as a part of that. And the wealthier you are, the allegedly, the nicer, the bigger the animal, the more expensive the animal that, that there is. 
But Matthew tells us that in his purification ceremony, I'm sorry, Luke tells us in his purification ceremony, that, that Mary and Joseph offered two pigeons. That was the least that you could offer. So here we have a, a young man and a young woman that by all accounts are described as being very righteous, very good, pure of heart. And yet, when it comes time for Mary to do her purification ceremony, she offers two pigeons. And so what that tells us is that they were very poor. They were just very poor. They couldn't afford anything more than that. And it was also at the same time that they dedicated Jesus back to Christ. So every Jewish family with their firstborn son were to take that firstborn son to the temple within 40 days and dedicate them back to God. So those were the two things that were supposed to happen. Now, if the Magi came before Mary did her purification ceremony with all of the gold and all of the frankincense and all of the myrrh, do you think they might have offered more than two pigeons? Probably. So they were still impoverished uh, at that time, 40 days after, so it would be about six weeks after Jesus had, or Mary had given birth to Jesus. It also says in Matthew that when the Magi approached the house, they approached the house that Mary and Joseph were in. So we know that, you know, we, the, the tradition of where Jesus was born or whatever it was, you know, he's born in a, a stable or born in a cave stable or as I've talked about, a stable attached to a home or whatever, that it appears as if they had their own home or were living with somebody very clearly in a house that, that they had some kind of uh, investiture or home that was a part of their lives at that time. So, so then after they're in this home and they've been established for a certain period of time, the Magi visit, which could be anywhere from seven weeks to two years. And I'll explain the two years in a few minutes why I say two years, because it's, it's indeterminate. Although I think it tends to be far closer to the uh, 40 days as opposed to the two years. So after the Magi visit, um, they are warned in a dream not to go back uh, the way they came, which would take them past Jerusalem where Herod was, and to go home a different way. Herod realized that he had been duped because he had tried to dupe them, right? And so uh, he sent his soldiers out to, to kill in Bethlehem, to kill every child two years of age or younger. So if Herod had waited almost two years, um, or if the Magi had come about two years afterwards, and that might describe, might explain why Herod had every child killed two years of age and younger in Bethlehem. Now, there are some, many historians who say, well, we, 
you know, there isn't anything in the historical record that, that indicates that that actually happened in Bethlehem. Well, you know, look, uh, there's no shortage of terrible things that leaders have done, governing leaders have done, for which there is no record of. I mean, they, they can be pretty good at expunging certain things from the historical record. But in addition to that, um, Bethlehem was a town of 1,000 people at most. So if Herod killed every child two years of age and younger, we're not talking hundreds of children. We may not even be talking dozens of children. Does this make sense to you? So if you killed hundreds of children, that would be hard for uh, that would be hard to explain away, hard to expunge. But if it was a dozen, yeah, Frank. Yeah, um, you know what? I'm gonna. I I said children, but I I don't I don't know if the text reads males. I should I should open it up and see because uh, I didn't read that portion for today. I think it's males. Yeah, it's males. Every male two years of age and under. So what's that? So even less. So even less. Yeah. So so as egregious as that might be. Um, it, it it may not have made a big enough imprint uh, to have recorded because there were horrible things happening all the time at that time and place in the world. So that's the timeline. So I tend to think that the Magi came after uh, Mary's, um, uh, her um, purification rite, after Jesus had been dedicated but before uh, the slaughter of the innocents and then the flight to Egypt. I think it happened somewhere in between there. I think that's a, a solid argument. So, um, so there are three questions about who the Magi were. So who were the Magi and what was their significance? The word Magi comes from the Greek, whose origin is Persian and used for any religious man educated who represented a non-Greco-Roman religion, who studied astrology. So it's not like the astrology that you read in the newspaper. I'm not sure if any of you read, you know, what your sign is and like what's going to happen to you today. It's not that kind of astrology, although it contained part of that, but it was really more sophisticated. Persians in particular, since the dawn of time, have been a people who have spent a lot of time studying the stars. They were known for it throughout the ancient world. Um, And it wasn't just in Persia, but some of them migrated and so they went to other different parts so even today in certain parts of the of the jordan of jordan there are tribes there um, and i can't pronounce their name who are known to this day for being studiers of the stars so it seems as if you know that those were they were those kinds of people they were not kings but wealthy aristocratic scholars there weren't necessarily three of them do you know why we think there were three of them because there were three gifts, right? So we think, well, one brought gold, the other brought Frank, and, you know, it's sort of like a potluck dinner, you know, so someone's going to bring something, right? So could it, be, could it be that there were a lot more than that? We don't know. They are not named. Um, and as I 
indicated already, they probably did not come the same night that Jesus was born. Um, what is interesting, as I've already said, is that they did come with the, this very clear, it seems, idea of who Jesus was. And so that shouldn't be too surprising either, because remember that historically that, um, that there was this time of where, where, the, where Israel had been deported. They had been conquered by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, not so much by the Persians, but, and then deported to different parts of the world. When those Jews were deported, they took with them their Judaism and the Torah. So there were places all over the Middle East, not the least of which would be Persia, uh, and other places where people might well have, especially scholars who wanted to study, who might well have been familiar with Judaism in that way. Current scholarship seems to indicate that they that these magi were, uh, I, I want to say, uh, Nabatean Gentiles. So, and I'll show you where they might be on the map. Nabatean Gentiles. Um, who were compelled to respond in faith, who themselves took great risks. Do you take a great risk for something that doesn't matter? Or do you take a great risk because something is really significant? I mean, if you watch any of the uh, reels or TikTok videos or something like that, you see people all the time who take great risks for nothing. I mean, you're like, what were you thinking there, right? But, the, but these people were apparently very convinced about what it was that they had to go and see. So if they came from Persia, that was 800 miles. If they were uh, part of the Nabataean Gentiles, that could have been even further. If you and I travel 800 miles, usually the thing that we have to be most concerned about would be a flat tire Right? Maybe the engine might break down or something like that. If you traveled 800 miles in that day, the number one thing you had to worry about was getting murdered while you were traveling. And or injured. And or disease. And you think, well, you know, they were wealthy, so had they probably had, like, security. Well, Exactly! So if you're traveling 800 miles and you have this big, strong security team, do you think people are going to be thinking, ah, they're not worth it? Or are they going to be thinking, hey, there's probably some frankincense, gold, and myrrh here that we could have? So they took some great risks. They had some high expectations. The truth of the matter is, is that here are these, these men who exercised a kind of faith in something they never saw in greater fashion than what many people in Israel at the time did. So that means all the more that you and I are without excuse. I mean, if these men were willing to do that, risk their reputation, risk their health, risk their life, 
<coughs> sacrifice a, 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 a solid portion of their wealth. All because they believed in this king that was going to be born and knew nothing about him, but were convinced of what God was saying to them. What great faith. Do we have the same kind of faith that they have? So we read here in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, the following. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, magi, came from the east to Jerusalem. So we know that they, were, they probably came from, the, from east of the Jordanian deserts. And, um, and so um, there's a, some text here I'd like to read to you that I think explains what modern-day scholarship seems to indicate is the real case. An alternative view of the wise men suggests they came from southern Arabia, the source of frankincense and myrrh. They were probably a class of Nabataeans who also were also experts in divination and stargazing, hence labeled by the familiar term Magi. If the wise men traveled from Babylon, they likely would have followed the main trade route along the Ark of the Fertile Crescent, a route that would have taken in excess of six weeks. If they traveled from southern Arabia, the journey would have taken much longer. So this next map is one that I put together for you. And so they at least came from where that red star is, but probably much further east than that. If they came from the traditional, what people consider to be the traditional distance, two maps away. So, Bree, if you could advance it a little bit more. Yeah, right there. That's where they would have come from. That's traditionally where we believe, so where they've come from. But now people tend to believe that they came from a place further to the south of that. So in this next slide, you can see that's a map of the New Testament. So if you see where the blue star is, that's where most scholars, I think, are beginning to believe where the Magi came from, there up to the red star, Bethlehem. So to put it in a more contemporary perspective, this next map shows that that was today, present-day Saudi Arabia. So a lot of people get lost with maps, you know. Maps are supposed to help you find places, but people get lost with maps a lot. So, but that would be modern-day Saudi Arabia. And so above that blue star is another blue star. That would have been, that's modern-day Iran. Okay. So I just want you to look. If somebody came to you and said, hey, there's this like world leader that we think is going to be born. We want to go see him. So why don't you get your stuff together? Look, we'll only be gone six or eight weeks or so. We'll ride some camels, stay in some tents, live in the desert and, uh, you know, eat from a cook fire. Uh, we'll have plenty of guards. We don't have to worry about anything. Don't mind the camel spiders that you'll see. Uh, I think everything will be okay. What do you say? Do you want to go? And by the way, you should bring some gifts. Like what? Probably gold, you know, expensive things that you would normally give to a king. What a tremendous act of faith. Would that be true of us? Would we do the same thing? 
Are we as attuned to searching for God? I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to just take a couple minutes because this is, um, I'm just going to go back for a minute. This is one of the great missiological texts that that, that missionaries use for, for explaining how God uses Gentiles or God reaches Gentiles. So I don't know if you know this, but there's some missiological principles in terms of missions. Missionaries say that God uses special revelation, that is the Bible, to inform people about what to believe and what to do. We all believe that. They also talk about a thing called general revelation, that God speaks to us through the created order. We read about that in Romans 1, 20-22 and Psalm 19, where in Psalm 19 it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Night after night they pour forth their Speech. So the missionary would say, well, you know, these magi were in tune with the created order and God was speaking to them on some level about the birth of his son. Missionaries would also say that man is made in the image of God. And because we are made in the image of God, we can know certain things about God. Not perfectly, but enough to be accountable Romans, Paul tells us in Romans too that the law of God is written on our hearts and minds. Jeremiah tells us that God is omnipresent in the world. That and many other passages. So if God is omnipresent in the world, if there is, if there is no place in this world where God is not there, then what is the purpose for God being there? And then when you talk about other religious faiths, all religious faiths usually practice one surpassing truth as it relates to God, but not a constellation of all the truths as it relates to God. So Muslims talk about the law. Hindus talk about judgment. Pantheists talk about the omnipresence of God. But they don't all put it together like the Christian faith does. So moving forward back into the text then. Verse 2. They were saying to to King Herod. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And so that phrase star when it rose really can be interpreted the rising of. The rising of. Um, and so um, there are many people who have tried to say that there was some kind of a natural phenomena, that there was a comet or constellations of planets that lined up. Astrologists say there's just, there's just no evidence for that. It seems as if this was a natural phenomena, a spiritual, a, a, a divine phenomena that God created to lead the Magi to Jesus. And that's fine. Why, why would he not do that? So there are no known natural celestial phenomena that occurred at that time, period, and place. It was probably a supernatural occurrence. Verse 3. When Herod the king, an Edomite, heard this, he was troubled. He was agitated. He was fearful and in dread. And all of Jerusalem with him. So... Um, historians will tell you that Herod was an incredibly paranoid person. I've mentioned to you before, he murdered his wife, he murdered several sons, he, met, he murdered a number of relatives. 
all because he thought they were trying to usurp his power. And so Herod was an Edomite. Now this is important because what that means is, is that Caesar appointed Herod to be king of Israel. Um, Herod was not Herod was not a direct descendant of Jacob. So any king of Israel was supposed to be a direct descendant of Jacob. He was not. He was a descendant of Esau. And so the religious people of the day saw his kingship as false. And because many of them saw it as false, he murdered them. And so when it says, and Herod was deeply agitated and all of Jerusalem with him, and then when it says that he went on to consult the, the, the priests and the scribes about where this Messiah was to be born, those priests and those scribes were his appointees. So, um, you know, just to give you this historical context, because this was all a part of what people were thinking and what Herod was thinking. Herod lived... Almost 40 years, Herod the Great lived almost 40 years as king of Israel with, the, with in, in the back of his mind, believing that he was a false king. But this new king, Jesus, was a descendant of Jacob. He was more entitled. He had a right to the throne in Israel Herod did not. Does this make sense to all of you? So what else he might have had in mind was this. In Malachi 1-2 it says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. I didn't love Esau I didn't privilege Esau. I didn't prefer Esau. I preferred, I loved, I appointed Jacob. Descendants in birth order were huge in all of that region of the world, let alone in Judaism. So this was a big deal. Paul, a scholar in the Old Testament, puts an even finer point on it. In verse 12 of Romans 9, She, Sarah, Paul was quoting, she, Sarah, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Herod was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. And so he was incredibly paranoid about anybody who had a better um, claim to the throne than him. Which was why he was so vicious in what he did. Verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem was a city known as um, uh, a region known for its its Uh, herding of sheep it's production of wool and production of sheep production for the sacrifices in in, uh, in Jerusalem 
It was a place where there were shepherds all over the place. And God made it clear that this king was coming from a place where there were shepherds. Herod was not a shepherd. He was a tyrant. He was not caring. He did not protect. He only ruled with an iron fist and grasped to himself whatever he could. So the contrast there is just incredibly stark. So uh, it's, it's important to see the important symbolism of what it meant for Jesus to come out of Bethlehem, not just because he was a, uh, a descendant of David, but because of the meaning behind Bethlehem. And the text here, you, sh- you shall come, from, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Must have slapped Herod in the face when he read that or heard that read. So that text was also alluding to King David as Jesus, as the promised Davidic king of Israel. So we read here in, um, in uh, 2 Samuel, it says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David and Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, you could almost read, when Herod was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall, sh- you shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be a prince over Israel. All this, I am sure, was a part of the conversation of what was going on in Jerusalem at the time when those magi showed up. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, secretly he summoned them, and ascertained from them one what time the star appeared. He called them secretly because he did not want anybody else to hear the conversation about how there this king who had a greater right to the throne was born. So he kept it all very hush-hush. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring, him to, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Still more evidence that this was probably a divine thing as opposed to a natural thing. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell, piptu. They fell down and worshipped him. These wealthy well-educated, aristocratic scholars just off a six- or eight-week hike or travel across the deserts into this podunk little town, into this nondescript little house to see these peasant parents and this little baby and their response was to fall down and not only to fall down and worship, but to give them among the wealthiest things that you could give anybody, things fit only for a king. What kind of faith does that take? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening up their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So there's so much going on here with these magi. But I think the greatest lesson that we can learn is that God is unrelenting in who he will bring to faith. God is unrelenting on 
how he will be glorified. Regardless, that, that even, even people who had no history in Judaism would bow down and worship this king. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then finally, look, these people, these men had a unique faith. And their faith is challenging to us. In today's world, if you have a little ichthus on the bumper bumper of your car or truck and somebody scrapes it off, you can end up on the 700 Club for being persecuted. These men exerted a tremendous amount of risk, resolve, and faith to worship the one true king. They practiced civil disobedience by ignoring Herod. They risked everything to worship this God who was worthy to be worshiped. Can we do as well as they did?